We all value intelligence, cognitive intelligence, emotional intelligence, social intelligence. But what about aesthetic intelligence? Why don't we ever talk about that? And what even is aesthetic intelligence? Join Pauline Brown, longtime luxury goods leader and founder of Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, as she invites her friends from the worlds of fashion, beauty, and design to discuss the power and purpose of aesthetic intelligence. We live in a world in which people clearly don't need more stuff. If anything, we're all trying to get rid of stuff. But there is something we all still very much need, and that is to feel alive, get inspired, discover new ways to express who we are. All that emanates from aesthetic intelligence. It's one of the few things left that doesn't rely on technology, and that's why I call it the other AI. For more on the power of the other AI, here's Pauline Brown. Hello, welcome back to The Other AI. This is Pauline Brown. I'm here with my my partner in crime, Paola Oriel. Paola, it's great to see you. Hi, Pauline. Great to see you again. So we've, these last couple of weeks, uh, covered this topic of aesthetics and aesthetic intelligence from all different angles. I always like to remind people that this word aesthetics is all about the senses. It actually comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which is uh, about perception of the senses. So it's not literally a definition or a meaning of of beauty, although great sensorial experiences typically are beautiful. Um, And in covering the senses, because one of the things that Pell and I do a lot at Aesthetic Intelligence Labs is we're, we're constantly probing deeper into what can we learn about the human senses and why certain experiences, sensorial experiences feel good, why others don't, how they come together across even, like integration of different sensorial cues. Um, Today we're going to actually cover uh, an element of the human senses that we've never covered on the air before. Um, And we really haven't covered it as much as uh, some of the others even off air. And that is touch, the power and importance of human touch. Um, And, and, Pell and I wrote a whole newsletter uh, uh, feature on this because we, in the process of doing our research, kind of came up with some little epiphanies of our own. But the one thing I, I, I have to sort of start it off, and I'd be curious, Paula, as we kind of delve into some of the things we learned and some of the areas we're still wanting to learn more, um, I was surprised to learn that of all the human senses that this is the earliest one to develop. I don't know why that surprised me. I mean, it goes without saying that, you know, in utero, we're not going to learn how to see (laughs) or hear. I mean, some people say that, you know, babies in the stomach can can listen to music and maybe respond with a heartbeat, but certainly they're not going to recall, you know, any uh, Beethoven or Bach from the belly, as far as I know. Um, but the um, the sensation, the touch, is the first one at, at about eight weeks in utero. Um, a uh, uh, an infant will develop that capability. So that was interesting to me because it's also one that you know we don't touch on as much as the others in terms of when you think of beauty, like you think of you think of music, beautifully played music. You think of art. Um, I can think of, you know, a, a fragrance or a, a, a wonderful culinary experience, but I don't really think like, what is a beautiful touch? So, so I'm curious, Paola, what, what were, so, what, first of all, was that as surprising to you as it was to me? And second of all, were there other revelations in this latest uh, deep dive that we did that kind of caught your attention? Uh, I agree, Pauline. I, it was a revelation. 
uh, I guess it's uh, we forgot about the sense of touch, so it, we can't switch it off. But it, right. so it's always there. Right. But we take it for granted, so it's something that we don't really think about, and that's why it surprised me so much. I think we I had never paused and think about it so much. And uh, we covered a lot of things in our newsletter. Yeah. I think if I could choose one, it will be the differences in terms of cultures and generations mm. as to how we communicate through touch and how there's a different language. We have our mother tongue and we have our mother touch. So an example of mother touch, um, which you brought to my attention, is even if we take, for example, cultural views toward kissing, mm -hmm. market this, there, you know, so in, in the animal kingdom, like my dog will go up to another dog and I guess they put their noses together, <laughs> but they don't kiss, right, lip to lip. So what, what, talk to me about what you uncovered on this topic of kissing and the different cultural reactions, which here in America goes without saying it's either romantic or it's affectionate, right? So I'm going to speak about personal experience in this one. Uh, as you know, I'm half Spanish, half Portuguese. Spanish people uh, greet each other with two kisses. Portuguese people greet each other with one kiss. I've lived in France. Sometimes they use three kisses and it's always so confusing. And there is a code. And if you don't get it right, there's a problem there when you greet someone. So if you go up to someone and you live between these two countries of Portugal and Spain, are you in the back of your mind, Do you before you go to greet them, are you thinking about, is this a two-kissing person or a one-kissing? Like, does that actually consciously go through your mind? I have done that, um, not within these two cultures, because it's innate in me, so I do know how to behave with each uh, culture. But in France or in Switzerland, for example, when it varies, and I had to learn how to behave and how to use this um, sense of touch with them, I did have to think about it. And it's quite awkward. So I worked for, as you know, I worked for a French company for, for years. And, you know, even um, if it's a long time associate, if it's the first time I were, were to be meeting with a French man or a French woman in a meeting, I would not greet them with a kiss. But if I've known them for a period of time and uh, we're reconnecting, it would be natural. You would never kiss a colleague you know, appropriately in America or in Germany or in Britain or so forth. So it's, it's very, it, that was very much a French thing. But it's also very awkward, you know, when you're between cultures, because sometimes the person, if one person assumes that you should kiss and you flinch, you know, even if you didn't mean to reject, both sides feel very off by that. Um, and it is, I guess, a way for cultures to sort of say who's in and who's out. And but it's also a way of saying how close you are to someone. So if you reject the kiss, it's like putting distance and making it too formal. While if you try to kiss someone and they don't want, you're being too confident with them. Right. So, so but, but the, the other thing that, that I thought was, see, I lived also the sort of two kiss, no kiss, cross-cultural issue. I did not know that in some countries, particularly in southern parts of Africa, the idea of kissing is revolting. I mean, so this is like, we, this is not something that, you know, people are just, but I mean, I think it's natural. Like I have a baby, I want to kiss a baby. If I, my, my brother just got a seven week old puppy. It's the cutest thing. I just want to kiss it. <laughs> but I've learned to do that because in this African culture, the idea of two people putting their lips together is like disgusting. So there, there are other though, other mother tongue, sort of mother touch 
type of concepts around the world. You know, what what are some of the others that you've that you've observed in terms of uh, touch communication? Uh, given we're talking about Africa, uh-huh. I will say um, how some African people they use the the sense of touch to communicate through their bodies, so they yes. tattoo themselves different. Yeah. So this is like a, it's, you compared it uh, in our earlier conversation um, offline to Braille. So if you think Mm -hmm. of like um, uh, the Braille, which was, you know, a very effective use of language so that people who can't read words can actually read, can they can read through their fingers. And this is imprinting on their bodies, even though these are fully visually um, capable people, but they imprint stories that you could actually feel the story of their culture, of their people, of their history uh, in different patterns. Um, and it, it's, it's decorative, but it actually looks quite painful because they are you know, permanently scarred in at quite a young age, but they wear it with pride. True. It's, I think it's the, the Nuba of Sudan, one of them. It's one mm. of the most iconic uh, people that do it. So the other thing I thought was interesting on the topic of touch, because we, we just mentioned kissing. Well, kissing is one form of proximity, but there's also, um, you know, some cultures are just more touch-oriented. So, for example, um, in doing some research, I saw that the Argentinians are considered the most, quote-unquote, touchy-feely, I guess it's just the most comfortable kind of putting, whether it's, you know, hand to shoulder sort of interaction. And uh, there are several cultures, especially ones in Asia, uh, but the Japanese ranked quite high in being um, what this was referred to as sort of, um, you know, that that more distant, that that, that, that your your skin and your body is, is a private zone and you really wouldn't touch it unless you were really intimate with somebody or very close. So there, those, this is an example as well where there's a lot of kind of cultural norms around it. But getting back to the universality of it, you know, there's some things that touch expresses. Um, you know, and I, I want to actually go to another side of this, which is not the aesthetic side, but as you know, we've talked about this many times, Paula. I'm reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's written by a psychiatrist who's, uh, he's, <laughs> very <laughs> tenured in his field. And for decades, he's been treating um, extreme cases of trauma, trauma victims. A lot of them are um, veterans coming back from war or uh, children who were victims of uh, child abuse, sexual abuse. I mean, really, he, the, some of the stories he shares are shocking and distressing. It's not a book that's sort of easy to take in. But the reason I was intrigued is uh, it's partly the, the title, The Body Keeps the Score, but it's this idea that he has found through his decades of practice that um, people who are uh, traumatized in their life actually hold the trauma in their bodies. They hold the, the physically. And that in the absence of treating them um, through, through the trauma, it will the body will hold it. So in other words, he's not a proponent of, for example, giving... Uh, antidepressants to trauma victims as a standalone. Antidepressants maybe with other forms of treatment he feels can be effective. But um, this idea that that the um, that, that just makes people feel better, but it doesn't actually work through the trauma, which is literally sitting in different parts, in, I guess, where the brain and the body are connected. Um, so one of the things that, that I thought about on a more, uh, I'd say on a, a more uh, upbeat note is... 
that the body also holds memory, and the memories often serve to protect us. It's not just protecting us from future trauma, but it's, you know, you think about all the times you were young and your mother said, don't go near the stove, and maybe one time you just went a little bit too close, not close enough to, you know, catch on fire, but your finger maybe got a little seared, and you, your fingers will know never to go near that stove when it's on again. That, that I guess, is, is another form of memory, but it's not always even just memory that's sitting in the traditional spheres of memory. So there was this idea that bodies remember, um, and then there's also the idea that bodies express a lot in the form of, um, you know, you think about like when they, uh, I've seen these studies where they take chimpanzees and they remove them from their mothers at a young age. And the fact that they were, even though they were properly fed, you know, and might have even had playmates and so forth, but in the absence of the nurturing that came with a mother, they are essentially socially deviant or socially off monkeys, which I think is interesting because they were deprived of probably many things in that socialization process, but the mother's touch was a big element. Um, and then, of course, there's the uh, the other ways that it, it, that <laughs> touches communicating. I mean, there, so there's the information, but there's also the uh, the emotion that happens in exchange between two people. What do you think? Though one of the things we didn't get into, but I'm curious what you what you what you think about is like wh- how would you c- connect emotion, positive emotion? Like, let's go back to the aesthetic sphere. So, mm-hmm. like, what would be the emotion of a cashmere blanket versus the emotion of a silk sheet? on the body. How do you think about that? And and where should we go with that in aesthetic intelligence labs? Hmm. So I feel the cashmere will make you feel cozy and safe and silk will make you feel sensual and attractive. Uh Do you, do you think that that is, um, that is similar to the mother tongue concept you talked about earlier, that that's cultivated or do you think that's universal? I would say it's universal, but shall we try it now? Do you have the same feeling as what I said? I do. Of course, I'm also, you know, a, a white woman, Western culture. Mm-hmm. I would love to know what the, you know, some of the tribes of Africa would have to say. But I have a feeling, you know, it probably goes back to sort of natural elements, right? So if you think about in nature, you know, things like the water feels a certain way in nature. And then sort of like silk would be replicating elements of the water um, and uh, um, a warmer textile has more of a sort of heat protectant, right? So, so I think there could be some elements of that. And mm-hmm. I do think there are, I think there are sort of, un- what, what feels comfortable to people, like some people like a hard bed and some people like a soft bed, right? But True. generally nobody likes like sleeping on a, um, a bed of needles. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are certain things that are kind of universal, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. So what would you say, if you were to create a mood board, because we do mood boarding and we've talked about that on the air a lot. If you were to do a mood board of textiles that speak to you, that sort of capture who you are as sort of half Portuguese, half Spanish, you know, with your influences, what are some of the textiles you would put on the board? Or the, the, they don't even have to be textiles, but uh, sort of tactility stuff. Mm. So I will for sure use cotton. I love cotton and organic cotton. Mm. Uh, I think there's a big difference between organic cotton and standard 
uh, cotton. And th this is actually th something that I really um, look for when I uh -huh. go shopping. And it's something that really attracts me. And uh, it's that's one of the reasons why I don't buy a lot of things online. Uh-huh. Because of the touching factor of the material. And if you touch um, something that's cotton that's not organic, how does that feel to you? It, there's always uh, more than non-organic. I mean, if it's 100% cotton, it's still a bit different. Um, probably because it comes with a different, um, a different quality in terms of production. So there's less care and it's not as soft. But normally when it's not organic, it comes with a mix of other, um, like maybe a bit of polyester or a bit of uh, different other materials. Mm. And that's when you really notice the difference. And that's when you see. Um, and how much, um, and, and I actually had this conversation in my classroom um, this week, but how much when, when you touch something and you feel that stretch of a polyester or a blend, mm -hmm. is it that you've been educated that that's not you know, it's not good for the environment. That How much of it is, it, is, is what the associations are and how much of it is actually in your fingers? What do you think? Um, a lot of it is association just because we are constantly reminded. But I think, like, I've always had that. I'm wearing this shirt right now, mm -hmm. which I don't even know what my... I love it, but I don't wear it often just because I don't like the feel of it, the touch huh. of it. Huh. So... Um, and it's not cotton, for sure. Yeah. It's not silk, so it's not a good material. It's not a um, um, 100% anything. It's a mixture, right. a mixture. And I think it's a lot about the feel, not just the, the association. Yeah. You feel I also different. wonder, you're, you're in a relatively warm climate, right? You're, um, and so the breathability is really important, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, I... I other than jeans, like I wear very little cotton and, um, I don't, um, you know, I certainly am not looking to wear polyester, but, but, but I, I like things. I do actually like things with stretch, but I think that's my comfort. Anything that feels like it doesn't give, you know, and I probably become more this way since, since the pandemic and I'm, you know, working at it from home and I comfort has become so, um, I'm really, I've become a lot more sensitive. Like I went to a wedding this week and I was wearing high heels, very high heels. <laughs> and these <laughs> high heels I have worn, I don't know, probably, I mean, dozens of times, maybe four or five dozen times. But by the end of the evening, I was in such pain. It really, really hurt me. And I, I don't remember feeling comforted by the end of an evening in years past. Um, but I don't know. It, it, it never struck me. I never was hobbling the way I was at the end of this evening. And I think I just lost the tolerance, you know, and I wonder how much with things like, um, I used to wear suits to work. I don't wear suits anymore, you know, and the idea of it, even when I put something on, it's a little more professional, it's uncomfortable, mm. but I wonder if I could get used to the discomfort again quickly. I wonder if it's a good thing getting used to it or not. I think we got more attuned with ourselves and what's good uh -huh. for us. What do you think? Um, so, yeah, I, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think on the one hand, I could never have really felt okay in those high heels. I just mm -hmm. stopped listening to the discomfort. And so I'm listening to it. So that's a good thing. Because, you know, if you're feeling something and you're not acknowledging it, 
you know, it causes another kind of stress. Uh, but I also am a little worried that I'm becoming lazy, that my tolerance, you know, for for just for being sort of more maybe physically exerting myself, including wearing uncomfortable things, has gone down. And and that, you know, that, that worries me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, so let's go back to, so the, you, cotton would be on your mood board. Any other materials or textures that you really mm -hmm. love? Uh, I would say linen too. I love uh -huh. linen, uh, which makes me think I hadn't thought about it before you said it, that I'm obviously choosing materials that are related to a warmer weather. Yes, for sure. But, uh, so linen and, uh, cotton would be my go-to then. Uh -huh. A touch of silk uh, for special uh, yes. days and special evenings or um, parties. Yeah. And obviously cashmere. Cashmere. That's, that mm -hmm. would be mine. Yeah. I, uh, I don't like thick, chunky knits. I always find, you know, and I've like traveled to the Nordic countries and I admire the knitters and so forth. But the idea of wearing one of those sweaters, even I have some, I never, ever wear them. These sort of thick, stiff knits. But something that's sort of soft and and mm -hmm. uh, very comforting. I think the materials that I would add to my mood board, my tactility mood board, uh, marble. I love the smoothness oh. of marble. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to wear it, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I um, I love that. And I also I kind of like glass, like not the kind of glass that looks like it's going to, it's frail and it's going to break, like, like thick glass. I'm even thinking I have some glass sculptures. Um, I think I like things that are very smooth, but, um, and, and, uh, you know, e even, even in wood, I will go for a sort of glossy, uh, sensual coating, like a, uh, as opposed to more of a rough, rustic wood. Um, you, you know, uh, but it's interesting because there's one guy in our, um, in our course at Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, and he is everything for almost all his elements, colors, textures, everything comes from the sea. It's all very sea inspired. So even like when he had a slab of wood, it's going to be a wood that kind of brings to mind a boat. Um, yeah. And any other thoughts, like just in our final moments on this idea of, of touch and, you know, and, and maybe also things that, you would think about what would you do going forward to be more attuned to your sense of touch? I think there's something very interesting happening. One of the reasons why we haven't spoken about touch or thought about touch throughout um, history so much is because of the taboos associated to touch. Mm -hmm. And more and more, we are accepting the pleasure that comes with touch and we are taking out taboos. And there are these there's this, it's called, um, um, the, what is it? The sex ed, uh, boom. The, the practice. Yes. Oh, it's okay. A, so it's mostly, um, educational sites and, um, any, like the, in the whole industry is, uh, talking about the pleasure that comes with touch and educating yeah. society in terms of yeah. how touch is used sexually, which wouldn't have never and it's my becoming mind. very mainstream, right? Yeah. It's like a mainstream, you know, things, because we're, especially in the U.S., probably more than the Latin countries, like we're, we're a little Victorian still. We're, we're like a little bit, 
prudish, at less so now. My daughter's peers are, are a lot more provocative at a young age than, than I was. But I do think we're relaxing. And I wonder, I mean, we, we can talk about this a little bit later because I know we're going to talk about some of the future trends. But I also wonder if there's going to be a reversion, if we're going to go back to you know, some of our prudishness because we've taken this sort of bombshell Kardashian provocativeness about as far as our society can tolerate. Or is this just progress? I don't know. Well, look, we, 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 we have to continue that one. I cannot leave people hanging on that question. So, uh, yeah, this, this, we, so our first segment uh, that we were talking about today on touch, uh, we're going to pick up on in the next one, but we're going to talk much more broadly on a number of different trends that we see happening and how they're playing out. A touch and the importance of it versus, as I say, touch screens is just one of several that we'll talk about. So as always, thank you for your contributions in segment one, Pella, and I'll look forward to picking up on this conversation. You've been listening to The Other AI.